You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Hello. We've got an interview for you today with Meg, the blogger behind Allergy Awesomeness. She has three kids. Her eldest has multiple food allergies and EOE. Her second son has allergies. And her youngest, knock on wood, has nothing so far. So we talk about what it's like to have a household with multiple allergens, whether she keeps an allergy-free house, and how she works with her husband in managing allergies and EOE. We also chat about cooking for allergies and her new cookbook that comes out at the end of April, an Allergy Mom's Life-Saving Instapot Cookbook. It's a bit of a longer interview, so I'm going to stop here and let's jump right in. Hi, Meg. Thanks so much for um, joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you. We follow you on your Instagram and we just love everything that you're doing. And so our first question really is, what is your allergy journey? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, sadly, I, I was one of those clueless people who did not understand what food allergies were. And so I try to have empathy when I get frustrated with people who seem to not want to know or understand because I was one of those people. I didn't know anyone who had food allergies growing up. And I remember even in college, the closest taste that I got to food allergies was I had a roommate with celiac and I was not careful at all. And part of it is I wish she would have advocated and, and helped educate me. She just said, oh, I can't eat bread. And so I was like, oh, that stinks. But she never told us, like, don't use the same toaster, don't use, you know. So I just was so clueless. So when my son, my oldest son, had King Noah's food allergies, I was literally like, oh, so he just can't eat a Reese's? Like, I was just so clueless to the extent that food allergies ripple across your life. So it was just kind of this rude awakening, zero to 100 trying to educate myself to keep my son safe, you know, because as a parent that mama bear comes out and you're like, okay, I've got to figure this out. Like, what do I do to keep my son alive? He was only 10 months old when he had his first anaphylactic reaction. It was the first time he had yogurt. And I mean, he was ballooning, his eyes were rolling back. He was red, he was vomiting. I mean, I was literally running into the ER with him in my arms being like, help me just screaming. And so I think having that like really startling event take place and it's it still feels really traumatic even just to talk about it that it it was like okay we've got to get this figured out because it wasn't just like oh he seems upset when he eats this or that it was like this is a big deal this is serious and it just you kind of just jump into the deep end from there you know like there's no other option this is your first son yes my oldest Mm mm-hmm Okay, so your oldest, at 10 months old, he had his first reaction to yogurt, and then you went to the emergency room, and then did you see an allergist right away, or what happened? Yeah, so it's interesting Interesting because because I feel like in the ER, they were just like, oh, he probably has a food allergy, just give him some Zyrtec. They didn't prescribe an EpiPen. They were just like so non-educational. But because my son had been having a lot of 
previous issues. He would get a lot of rashes. I was exclusively breastfeeding. So I had my pediatrician had been saying, I think there's something that you're eating that's bothering him. Um, a lot of digestive issues. I'll spray the details. But so he had been acting very um, sensitive anyway. So I was already on like a waiting list to see a pediatric allergist. But as you know, that can be really difficult to get into. I was like a three month waiting list. So having that anaphylactic episode just secured, like, I don't care if the ER doesn't feel like this is serious. And my mama got, I can tell he needs to be seen. And I just kept pushing and kept, you know, calling on the waiting list until we got in. And that ER visit didn't bump you to the top of the list at all? Well, they did as far as they saw him right away. But as far as like how to handle it afterwards, there was no education. There was like, okay, you should probably not have him eat this. It was just like, oh, he's fine now. We've got it under control. You can take him home. It was really frustrating. Um, And I've had several instances with that where I feel like he's had several anaphylactic episodes afterwards. And I feel like I'm having to advocate and like teach the doctors like, no, he needs epinephrine. Oh, we're just going to wait. No, that's not actually correct. You need, you know, so um, I don't know if it's the area that I live, but I've definitely learned that it's up to you as an allergy parent to be up to date on research and practices and to be willing to kind of go to bat, you know, even though sometimes that's not my nature. Like I've really had to learn how to advocate because I used to be really shy. So yeah, no, I mean, I think like Courtney was also wondering, and I am too, like when you're on that wait list, because that's, I mean, I've actually seen that in New York city too, where, where people have waited a really long time to get into some of the um, bigger hospital clinics, but then parents don't realize that sometimes at least in New York city. And I don't know about you live in Utah, right? Right. Salt Lake City. Yeah. City. Yeah. I don't know about there, but I know in New York City, there's a lot of outside allergists that are not practicing in the big university settings. And we don't have a wait list. You know what I'm saying? Like somebody can see me the same day that they need to. So I think that that's something else that I'm always, I feel like I'm always educating parents that, I mean, they, they end up at my door somehow, but, uh, that's something that I hope just maybe someone will listen to this and find out that there's maybe other ways that they can see an allergist. Yeah. That would be amazing to get in that safe soon. The nice thing is for us is that once we got in, it's always been fairly easy to get appointments. It was just that initial one. And I'm, I'm guessing because Salt Lake is a lot smaller than New York. There's only like three or four for the whole Valley. So I really think it's just, um, and mine, he's private practice. So, um, private practice or with like the bigger primary children's hospital, I've never had any luck, any different luck, but that's so good to know that if we ever move or to check other cities, if it's like that, because what a difference that would make not waiting months and months, you know? And how does it feel during that time? Like I can only imagine how nerve wracking it would be from when you have this reaction to that, like, you know, three month wait time before you see the allergist. How do you, how did that feel? What did you do in that time? Were you like afraid? Oh, certainly. The nice thing was, is that I had gotten on the wait list probably about two months prior to him having the anaphylaxis. So there wasn't a whole lot more time 
waiting as far as we had done a majority of it. But yeah, it was, you know, trying to figure out how to read labels and, you know, being terrified of what I was going to feed him and watching for reactions. And I guess I could say the silver lining looking back, I mean, at the time I didn't really feel this way, was that he was so young. He was never outside of my care. So it wasn't like he was going to school or other people were watching him. So I at least had that safeguard of like, okay, I now know what it looks like when he has a reaction and I can 100% control what he eats. So um, we kind of had at least that going for us. Yeah. And then once you did get him tested, what, what did he end up being allergic to? You know, I, I can't even remember now because it, his allergies have changed so much over the years, but it was pretty much everything. I mean, you know, like you're, they do the prick test on the back and it's like red hives everywhere. And I just remember I was thinking, okay, food allergies are usually like to peanuts, right? Okay. Well maybe milk too, now that we know about the yogurt. And I remember it was like beef and lamb and corn and peas. And like, how do you have food allergies to these? Like, I didn't even know that was possible. I mean, it just, it was like a 45 minute commute each way. And I just remember falling on the way home and calling my mom being like, how am I supposed to cook? Like, what, what does this even mean? Like, how can you even be allergic to these things? So it was just like one eye opening experience after the other, you know, that you're just, when you're so sheltered from food allergies and you're so unaware that it's like, Whoa, I didn't even know it could be like this, you know? So in the beginning, were you doing, um, some kind of a hydrolyzed formula, like a Nutramagen or something? No, I, um, my pediatrician and whether it was correct advice at the time or not, I mean, it's changed so much, but she was like, you know, breastfeeding, it would probably be best for passing along antibodies. And so I just altered my diet. So that way he could still continue to be breastfed. And he was farther along at this point. So it wasn't for super long, but yeah, it was a struggle to, you know, I, I don't know if it's like this for anyone else, but when I'm nursing, I call it my fourth trimester. I'm like voraciously hungry. And so it was hard. I remember being like, I'm starving and I'm trying to make quality milk for this kid and I don't know what to eat. And so it was, it was a challenge. And I think that all these challenges and these underlying things that happened that really rocked our world was that driving force of why I started my blog, because I was like, I know how it feels to feel like the rug has been pulled out from under you and you're just scrambling. Like it's already hard enough being a first time parent and being like, how do I keep a child alive? Let alone like, and all the worries and fears you have, like, are they sleeping on their back? Are they sleeping enough to being like, now I don't know what to feed them. So I just, if I ever can like spare people or help them feel like they're not alone or just have that empathy, it's like such a driving force for me. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I think that Uh, blogs are also like, I don't know about you, but for me, it was like, I started my blog to connect with other people, but I also find it like a really good source of therapy (laughs) to connect with other people, but to also like tell your story and to like relive these moments. Like when you were telling us about your son's first reaction I I literally got goosebumps I've heard my parents tell that story about me and it's like sharing these moments are also very healing 100% and I think the more time at least for me that passes I have just kind of a greater understanding and you're more separated from it so you can like oh, I see that silver lining or I appreciate how much I've grown since then or, oh, I have more empathy for myself because I didn't know what I knew now, you know? So I think that there's just this one 
wonderful process of sharing. So when people will say, oh, thank you for sharing. I'm like, no, you don't know what it is for me to be able to share. You know, it's a it's a gift it, that I think goes both ways. And so this is the same son that's diagnosed with the um, eosinophilic esophagitis. Right, right. And so we really were so fortunate. And I just, for me, like God is in the details or you could say, you know, the universe is aware because the pediatric allergist that we got into first actually specializes in EOE. And so as he was noticing, wow, he has a super high number of allergies. Um, he's throwing up all the time. He's failing to thrive with his weight. I think we need to get him scoped. So my son was scoped at only 14 months, which I feel like is so fortunate that we found out so young, um, instead of like going one way and then again, having the rug pulled out from under. So it's kind of like we just learned all at once and just kind of, okay, this is our new normal. So I feel very fortunate that uh, we found the doctor that we did that was so on the ball. Can we take a moment to pause and explain EOE? Yeah, I would love to hear your explanation of it because I'm always like, how do you explain this? So... Yeah, I mean, you know, um, I think the easiest way is just to say it's a chronic allergic inflammatory disease of the esophagus. So the esophagus is the tube connecting the mouth to the stomach. Essentially, it's all mediated by a cell called an eosinophil. Essentially, there's super high numbers of eosinophils in our esophagus. And when we have eosinophilic esophagitis, and that leads to irritation and inflammation in the esophagus, and that can cause what, you know, what your son had, which is poor growth, chronic pain and discomfort, difficulty swallowing, because that irritation and that inflammation can actually lead to scarring. When people try and ask me, yeah. I just say like, you know how he has regular food allergies where he would need an EpiPen if he was to eat it. His esophagus has his own set of food allergies. And if he eats those food, it really damages and hurts his esophagus and can cause additional side effects because people are always like, well, if he eats one of his EOE triggers, does he need an EpiPen? Well, technically no, but it still causes a lot of internal issues for him. So I think it's kind of confusing for people where he has, you know, both and they're like, but they're both allergies. I'm like, right. But one's just in his esophagus. One is his entire body. So I love your explanation. Actually, I think that's so much easier to understand and um, makes so much more sense. I think for most people, I think, uh, I think we doctors, we get like engulfed in the details and that's probably too much information for anybody. It's really yeah. in the last about 10 years that, that we really understood a little bit more about EOE. And we still actually in medicine have a really long way to go before we understand everything, everything, because even the testing as you know, we can go into a little bit, that's also very confusing. There isn't the kind of testing that we have for other classic allergies for the eosinophilic esophagitis. Oh yeah. And I've even seen kind of a kind of a cycle and a change in how at first it was like, you have to be prick tested and patch tested for every single food. And now it's like, well, we don't even really patch test anymore. And I just feel like we're, you know, you just kind of have to go with the flow as it's like, medicine's trying to catch up to this new disease. So it's been interesting. Yeah, it's evolving. I mean, we're, we're really trying to figure out with what the best tests are and if we're going to figure out what the best tests are, because there's no way to make it sound kind of graphic. There's no way to kind of open up the esophagus and test the esophagus. Do you know what I'm saying? And yeah. that's kind of in a weird way, what we would potentially need to do. And we don't have that kind of 
uh, we're not going to do that kind of testing. And so it's, you know, we're trying to use the skin and we're trying to use all these other markers, but I don't think we've really figured out a good marker for which foods are exactly causing this. And now we're just kind of going off of the data that we have over the last 10 years. And we're realizing that the big culprit you know, some of the six main food categories like milk, eggs, wheat, soy, peanuts, tree nuts, and shellfish. But now we've even narrowed it down to milk as the primary one as a culprit. So yeah, I think a lot of doctors have a lot of different ways of approaching it. And it really depends on how I think sick the patient is and how, um, and what they present with. Yeah. And it's frustrating because I get asked all the time, like, oh, well, will your son grow out of it? And I'm like, that's a complicated question because even if he was to grow out of his traditional anaphylactic allergy to milk, he will probably never outgrow it due to his EOE. So like milk will probably, because people say, oh, I hear about those oral immunotherapies or patch testing. Can't you just do that for him? And it's like, he's such a complicated case where he has the the dual issues that I'm like, I don't think he'll probably ever be able to have milk, unfortunately, even if he was miraculously to outgrow it, just because if it's not the one thing, it's the other. So it's, yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And there, they are two very separate mechanisms of action. And, and if he's definitely responding well to a milk-free diet, as far as his EOE is concerned, then we definitely can't reintroduce that. And, um, and yeah, and the oral challenges or oral immunotherapy that we're doing for other foods for the classic food allergens is not an option for EOE right now. What's one piece of advice you would give a parent who suspects their child may have EOE, for example, eosinophilic esophagitis? A lot of people that come to me and say, I think my child might have EOE, have such fear because it can be quite severe and there's such a spectrum of it that they're just like terrified to find out if their child actually has it. But my piece of advice is always, it's better to know what you're dealing with. And I know so many people who are like dragging their feet, getting the diagnosis and they think I'd rather not know, but I'm like, no, like, cause I, our son like didn't even want to eat because it was so miserable for him to swallow. And I'm like, when your child is, even if their diet is thinner than what it used to be, seeing them gain weight and seeing them want, be happy eating again, and just knowing what you're up against is like half the battle. I think sometimes they look at maybe more like how my son was at the first where he was like down to 10 foods and they think, oh, that's going to be my life. Well, there's many people with EOE who just have to avoid the main ones like the milk and the dairy and the wheat. I think they just have that worst case scenario on their head. Like they're going to be on a feeding tube and my life is going to be turned upside down. And I know my son's case isn't always a case, but as he's gotten older, there's been many foods we've been able to reintroduce. So I always say, hold on. It might not always be that bad. And you'll be so glad when you see your child thriving and not feeling sick all the time. So it's like, take that deep breath. It's okay to feel scared and still do it. Go forward. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a combination of just being scared of the procedure itself and then being scared of the actual results, you know, that come from the test. That's great advice because I've definitely seen patients that have waited and waited, even though they kind of suspected. I always tell parents, parents too, like, like, I feel so grateful that we found out sooner than later. So it wasn't like my son was like, oh, I really miss cinnamon rolls and I miss X, Y, Z. I mean, there's so many foods he can't do, you know? So it was like, I feel like the sooner he got used to this diet and this is the way he ate, it was like normal life, the older he got. So by the time he was in school, 
and he's seeing people eat different foods, he's not like, Oh, I remember what that tastes like, you know? So I feel like you want to get it in kids really soon. Just so if their diet does have to change, they can really adapt to it because kids are so adaptable. I think that's a really good thing to know. Like a lot of parents are afraid that their child isn't going to experience certain things in life, but it's if they've never known it, they don't know what they're missing. That's what I always say. Like, I've never had this or that. And so it doesn't bother me. I don't know what I'm missing because I've never had that in my life. And I think that's a really good point because I think that's another part of the fear is like the diagnosis itself. But then you have to rework how you planned your life with your child. You know, maybe you can't do the ice cream outing every Friday or whatever you had envisioned when you were pregnant. Your life changes, but that's your new normal. And there's there's no harm in that. Yes. Very good point. Yeah. I mean, and, and also like if, if you're not feeling good when you're eating something, you start developing like just aversion to food in general. And that's another thing that, especially with kids that we get really nervous about, right. It's just that they become extra picky because they're just scared of everything um, because they just don't feel good. I don't know if you had to deal with that at all, but I I have seen that in my practice. I think sometimes people have felt sick for so long that they don't realize how good it feels to feel good. Like I think our son for the first two years of life just always felt icky and didn't even know there was anything different he could feel because that's just how he had felt for so long, you know? So that whole like giving them the gift of like, oh, I don't have this constant stomach ache or I'm not constantly gagging or having food get stuck in my throat and I can eat and, and feel good afterwards. I mean, it's... You just take those things for granted, I think. That's a good point just to make real quick because we haven't really talked about the symptoms that somebody has to watch out for if you think that you have eosinophilic esophagitis. So maybe I'll just quickly run through those really quick. Um, But, you know, um, things like difficulty swallowing, which Megan mentioned, um, food getting stuck, nausea, vomiting, failure to thrive, which is not growing well poor appetite, especially in infants and children, abdominal or chest pain, sometimes that classic heartburn kind of feeling, and sometimes just uh, general abdominal pain, feeding refusal, intolerance or poor appetite for infant or children. And then sometimes you can even have difficulty with sleeping due to like the chest or abdominal pain or the reflux or the nausea or all of those combined in infants, children, and adults. Those are kind of the things to watch out for and acid reflux that isn't really responding to medication that's another sign that it might be something else like eoe that's really good to know where would you like what kind of resources would you suggest someone can go look for if their child is newly diagnosed with eoe or they are um you know what kind of resources would you recommend? Well, I did just a few months ago because I feel like EOE is such an enigma all into itself. I did write such a long Q&A post of all the typical questions I get. And I, it's just called A Mother and Son's Journey Through EOE, just because I feel like it's really nice to see how another family has managed it. There's not always a right or a wrong, but just to compare of like, oh, this is what their doctor recommended or, oh, this is how they handle feeding and and whatnot. But the two probably biggest things that helped me was one, finding a support group, which I feel like is now easier than ever with Facebook and online. So I, I joined like an in-person one, which I was really fortunate. There was a chapter in Salt Lake City. 
as well as like a online Facebook one, because you will sometimes feel alone or you will have questions. And sometimes you're waiting a few months to get in to see your doctor again, or your time with your doctor is limited and you've got a million questions, or you just want to see if the course your doctor's taking is what other doctors typically take. And so just being able to bounce it off other EOE moms was like, invaluable. Like, oh, oh, I didn't think about handling birthday parties like that. Or, oh, I didn't realize, you know, dum-dums only have artificial flavors. So my child can do that or just different things that, cause there's so much to cover in such short appointment windows. And then the other was, um, app fed. I hope I'm saying that right. The American partnership for eosinophilic disorders, I think is what it stands for. But that's a really good um, national resource that has information and um, they even have a conference that I know some of my friends have gone to that they really enjoy. And they have the different versions like EOE or EC um, because there's depending on where it strikes in your, what what do you say, your digestive system? Yeah. Um, I think that was a really good place to find accurate information. So between the two, kind of like the lifestyle, finding other moms, even if it's online um, to bounce kind of lifestyle stuff off of, and then having the hardcore factual things from app fed were a good balance for me. Yeah, that's really good advice. Both the personal management side and the also knowing what's really going on. I think that's good to have both balance out. Oh, sorry. Just as a clarification, EC stands for eosinophilic colitis. So it, again, like you said, it affects more the large intestine versus the esophagus. Is your house completely allergen-free for your eldest son, or do you guys have things that he's allergic to in the house? Just curious, since you have one son with allergies as well, are you completely like tree nut, peanut free? I'm always intrigued how like multiple allergy families uh, navigate this territory. Man, that was such a tough decision because when, yeah, when he was our only child, it was like, you know, it was so much easier to manage. And then when our second came along... Um, we were like, especially where our son, I mean, at that time, I think he had like 75 foods he was avoiding. This is when his EOE was not managed well. And so we, I mean, his, his diet was so limited and we, and we thought we need to also make sure our second son has a well-rounded diet if he can, and we want to ensure his health and we want him to have a broad variety. So it was heartbreaking. It was like, it felt like you were choosing between the two. Like, you know, are we going to hurt our older son's feelings by allowing our younger son or do we deprive our younger son for our older son? And it was, it was gut wrenching. And I always, I get asked this question a lot, especially now that we have a third that has none. And so it's just such varying degrees. And I don't feel like there's a right or wrong answer, I guess, because it's such a private, hard decision that I try not to judge parents either way, which they go, because I think each has valid points. Um, it was something we, my husband and I really discussed, we thought over, we prayed over and we talked to our allergist about it. And the conclusion that we came up with, and, and again, I think one other factor, sorry, I hope I'm not belaboring this, but just to kind of point out like all the factors that go into it is my oldest son that has the EOE and, and so many food allergies is such a responsible kid. And so I think you have to also take into personalities of the children. And he's like, from day one, he'll be like, I have food allergies and can I have this? Is this safe? Like he's always asking, always on his toes. Like he's, we really lucked out. He's just such a responsible little man. So we decided we're going to go ahead and have the allergens in the home because 
we wanted our son to, our second son to be able to have, cause it was such staples, like, I mean, milk and bread and eggs and cheese, like those are such a staple for little kids diets that we were just like, oh, we just don't feel good keeping all of those away from our second. So we had a, we had to, but with that came a lot of protocols, right? Like our second only eats it in his high chair. No one else sits in his high chair. The minute he's done, we wash him down with soap and water. I bleach wipe his chair. You know, it's not like we're letting him walk around with a cheese stick in his hand. And so it came with a lot of kind of extra work, it felt like. And then it was like, um, our oldest son has his own shelf in the pantry. And that is the safe shelf. Um, We keep the unsafe foods in a place where our oldest can't even reach, can't even get to. One thing that kind of helped us decide is that our allergist had said, you want your son to always have your oldest, the one with the most allergies. You want him to always have to be like, is this safe? And never just get to a point where he's in such a comfort zone because he's at home that he eats something unsafe. Because accidents could happen even if a company changed their label or, you know, they changed a recipe and something. He said, so it's good practice for your son, even at home to ask, is this safe? And then once he's old enough to read labels. So that's kind of what we did. And my oldest was two and a half when we had our second. And so he's kind of always grown up with that. Like, is this safe? Is this for my brother or is this for me? And we've always tried to do to only have foods that have like an equal to them. So I wouldn't ever buy like donuts for my second because there's no safe donut substitute for my oldest. And to me, I feel like that almost gets cruel if like my oldest is watching my second eat something really yummy. So it was like, we would have cow's milk yogurt and then we would have coconut yogurt. So we'd have Calvin's yogurt and we'd have Carter's yogurt and you can both have your own safe yogurts, you know? So we would always try and have it. So they each had their own option. So no one ever felt left out. So we would kind of, I guess, deprive our second in the sense that like he hasn't grown up eating goldfish crackers and cheese sticks and pizza and chicken nuggets and a lot of typical American staples for little kids because we didn't want our oldest feeling like, man, I don't have anything that looks like that. And it's not similar. And I feel really left out. So that's a really long answer. But I just like a lot goes into if you're going to go down that route of having, you know, allergy food in your home, there's got to be a lot of protocols and there's got to be a lot of thought that goes Uh behind it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you brought up a lot of good points and just to break it up a little bit, like one of them that I think is critical is just trying to figure out the kind of child you have and how old they are in comparison to the second child, right? Um, like what age differences and, um, how safe it would be for your child with the allergies to have those foods in the environment. And neither of our sons are contact reactive. I mean, I have friends who can't even be in the same room. And so that wouldn't even be an option. I mean, you really have to weigh the severity and all those things for sure. Right. The severity, the age, yeah, the kind of child you have. And so like, you know, the kind of risks that that child might have as far as like just getting into something that they shouldn't, you know? Um, Oh, for sure. And like my second, he is sneaky and he's the type that like, if it looks good, he's going to eat it. So, you know, we haven't been able to have as many things for him, you know, around the house that would look tempting if it has something in it, because it's just like just two totally different personalities that you really have to be like, is my child a risk taker where he's going to be like, I don't care. I see chocolate. I'm going to eat it and ask the consequence later, you know, like, oh, I ate that. Was that safe? So 
I think it, there's such a spectrum. Yeah. Have you, have you, I'm sure you've done a blog post on that. Have you outlined all those things somewhere? Or I feel like that would, might be a good thing for us to do after this episode for people. Yeah. You know what? I haven't. That's a really good idea. We've definitely, um, we usually do like monthly lives. Um, my husband and I just talking about topics that people have questions on and it comes up a lot. So we've definitely discussed it and that's like in our archives on my Facebook page, but I should just spell it out and write it down because there are a lot of things to think about when you're crossing that bridge. Yeah. And that's actually a great transition because we really wanted to talk about your husband too, and just how it's really cool to see that you both get on the Facebook live and do the Facebook lives together. And Courtney and I were just kind of like talking about that and how neat that is. And was that how it was from the very beginning? Were you both really interested in your son's, both of your son's allergens right from the beginning or was it, I mean, how did that evolve? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's been a journey and I hope people don't be like, Oh, I wish my husband was this involved. I mean, I think there's some unique factors that go into it. The first being that, um, my husband's first generation, um, his parents came from Haiti. And so his diet was very healthy. Everything made from scratch, aware of what you're eating. It's kind of easier to visit his family because they're like, oh, you can't have this. Oh, we can cook around it. And it wasn't like some typical American families where it's like, oh, we just eat processed everything. Like he's very health conscious and he's very aware. So I think that really helped and played a part as far as like, oh, we have to think outside the box and we have to cook differently and we have to look at labels and ingredients. So my husband was kind of already on a good path for that. But when my son was first diagnosed, my husband's um, been in school basically the entire time we've been parents. So he's worked and gone to school. So I think he's wanted to be more involved, but the brunt definitely fell on me as far as I was the one who had the time to go to the appointments. I was the one doing the cooking. Um, he's tried to stay involved, but there was definitely points where I felt still lonely or still felt a lot of pressure. Like this is on me to keep our son alive. And, you know, we had a lot of late night conversations where he's like falling asleep on the pillow, but I'm like, wait, stay awake. I have to tell you what happened with the allergist today, you know, so it was a, it's a lot of work, I think, to keep a spouse involved. And, um, especially where our son's allergies were always changing. We were always doing prick and patch testing. Okay. This is safe. Oh, no, it's not safe. Or now we can introduce this. I mean, it's been such a flux of trying to keep it that I would try and do my part to keep him involved as far as like, I would keep lists on the fridge. Here's the current list of what's safe, what's not. I would email him so he could have a soft copy on his phone or on his laptop of here's the latest, you know? So it's, it's taken a lot of work and figuring out what works for us as far as keeping each other in the loop. But I, I do feel fortunate that he's wanted to, he's cared to, but there's been times, especially at the beginning where I was nervous. Like, does he really get how to read a label? Have I taught him well enough? Cause when you're the primary caregiver, it's second nature for you. Um, there's that give and take and there's that learning and that there's that learning to trust. So it's hard, you know, but I think yeah. it's worth it. It's nice to have, like, I just went to New Jersey for six days, you know, and I wasn't even worried in the least because I knew he could handle it. So whenever I hear allergy moms are like, I'm afraid to trust my husband. It's like, 
to me, it's so worth it, you know, because at the end of the day, they're still the parent. They still love their child fiercely. They just might not have as much experience, but letting them in has been so, so helpful to me, you know, because it's taxing to have that only be on your shoulders. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, so again, I love all the examples that you're giving. They're really practical when your allergens are changing so frequently, especially with something like eosinophilic esophagitis, which is constantly an evolving kind of condition. It's really nice that you, you know, you figured out different ways to kind of keep the other person and other family members even in the loop. Now I know that there's resources like, I don't know if you are, if you're aware of that app, the WeBelay app or Belay, I think they call it. Um, I know Courtney. Yeah, it's Belay and it's like an app to help family members manage allergies. So it's like one place for all the information to live. And then I think you can grant people access to it. And it's, you know, it's really nice with all these new apps coming out is that this would have been very helpful for you because you could just update one portal. Oh, right. I was like using Google Docs, like (laughs) back in the day. (laughs) Exactly. Before apps. (laughs) Yeah. And it was created by um, this food allergy parent. Abby, who I think Courtney and I have both met. And so it's just, it's kind of, it is a really neat, though. it's a very simple, like very nice, like easy, beautiful app, you know, <laughs> to use. So, and it's, it, I think it's easy for caretakers too. So anyway, I, I think cool. things like that, but things like emailing lists, putting lists up on refrigerators, all those things are so important to have it kind of in your face for everybody, you know, anybody that's in the environment that might not know. Have you done things like bracelets? Yeah, there's like, you know, stickers and um, patches. I know I have stickers on some of my things. I wear a bracelet and I've definitely emailed all of my family. Everyone has a copy of my allergy list and email. So I totally get that. But yeah, good question. Do you, do your kids wear um, medical alert? Yeah. So my kids have um, bracelets and then um, I they each have like several allergy shirts that say different. You know, I have food allergies. Please don't feed me. Things like that, that I always have them wear on like the first day of school. Um, I try to have them wear their bracelets whenever they're out and about. So yeah, I think I just any extra reminders like that, especially where they still might be young and not used to advocating, just any extra reminder you can give someone. Although I think everyone around me, whether it's my neighborhood or my church group or my son's school, like they all know me and I make sure they know our story kind of well before they even meet my son. So, but I just feel like any extra touch point is it will never hurt. And they're great conversation starters too. Like when someone notices the bracelet, they'll be like, oh, what's that? That's weird. Or that's really pretty. And I'm like, it's pretty, but do you know what it is? (laughs) And then I can introduce my allergies in a way that doesn't feel forced, but more natural and more conversational, which I think sometimes you feel like you have to tell people that you have food allergies right away, but you don't want to like overwhelm them at the same time. And it's a nice introduction. So, so when did your husband start doing the Facebook lives with you? So it's funny because I am super chatty. I love doing things like that. And he is like the yin, yin to my yang because he's very quiet, very reserved. I mean, obviously I needed someone who could just sit and let me talk. So he's, he's very much more reserved, not wanting to do stuff like that. And so I remember when I asked him, I was like, oh, he's going to say no. Like, I don't see him wanting to do that. But the way I pitched it to him, I said, I just feel like allergy dads don't have a voice. And 
he's my like reason. Like when I freak out and I get nervous, he's very cool, calm, collective, his personality. And he brings so much to our allergy family that I was like, I feel like the discussions would be lacking or I would get credit for having come to this point when it was really you that was like, breathe, Megan, it's okay. You know? So I really wanted to have him be involved. And I was like, look, after the kids go to bed, we're probably just going to be watching Netflix. So we may as well like do something together that will hopefully help people. Would you be willing? And he was like, okay. And it's kind of funny because if you watch like our first few, like I just feel like he's, he's grown a really long way. And I'm really proud of him because at first I'd be like, don't just stare at the camera. Like, look at me sometimes or say something. You're really quiet, you know? And he's like, I don't know what to say. So it's been kind of this fun evolving project that we've done together. And I'm really glad he stuck it out with me because it's funny. Cause sometimes at the end of the night, we're like, we're exhausted. We just put our three kids to bed do we really have the energy? And then when we're done, we're like, oh, we're so glad we did that. And it's kind of this fun, connective thing we can do together. So I'm really grateful he's come along for the journey. That is so sweet. And so do you have, I know Courtney said you have a lot of people that kind of come on to the Facebook live and do you have a lot of dads that come on? Have you like notice that I, I feel like most of the people that I'm following are women in the allergy yeah. space, except for the red sneakers for Oakley. I know it's, that's an allergy dad, but I, I don't, I feel like it is mostly moms. It is. It's very predominantly women. And it's funny. Cause I feel like a lot of women will ask questions like, so what would your husband do? Or my husband does this, you know? So I think it's still something that maybe men might not feel comfortable getting into. So I hope he's showing an example or giving some thought to other wives of like, oh, my husband can be involved or maybe he wants to be involved. And I just assumed he didn't or, you know, and to each their own, every couple has a different dynamic. But yeah, I hope, I hope he's helping people realize that, you know, dads can be just as involved and, and the positivity that can come from that. Yeah, that's really beautiful. It sounds like you guys have a really nice relationship. Um, And so did he have a big part in your uh, cookbook? Oh, I mean, he's my number one taste tester for sure. (laughs) So, (laughs) In fact, I think by the end, you know, I was like, okay, iteration two or iteration three, do you like it more salty? And he was just like, I can't even anymore. Like, there's so many recipes. I remember when they contacted me, I was like, I don't know if I want to do it. I mean, do we have the time right now? This is going to be a huge project. And he was like, do it. So, I mean, he's had a hand in supporting me and tasting all my flops and watching the kids while I'm like, I have to write, like take the kids. I can't think. And so, yeah, he's been there every step and, and probably wouldn't have happened without him. So really grateful for that. Oh, that's beautiful. And uh, what's your favorite recipe? Oh, oh, it's a toss up. Probably my barbacoa pork or my smothered pork chop. I don't know. Talk talk to me on a different day, especially when I'm pregnant, right? Like cravings, man, they're all over the place. But I mean, honestly, I can say that we genuinely cook out of it several times a week. It's just, it's a constant rotation. Like their recipes that we enjoy. And it's like, I'm always like, how did I cook without these 60 recipes? Like these are now our staples. So I just really hope it will give some other allergy families just some different options. Cause it's so easy to get in a rut and be like, I don't know what to feed my family or I'm so sick of the same thing. So I just truly hope it will be helpful to people. 
I definitely think so. I think that I know I yeah, like we go through phases where I'm just cooking like the same five things that all just look a little bit different, but it's all like exactly the same food. Well, and my question as a vegetarian who is now lactose intolerant, are any of your recipes conducive to that? (laughs) Yeah, I've definitely, um, there's some meatless ones or I try to give some options as far as like, um, you know, mushrooms would be great in this. If you want to take the meat out or like uh, my orange chicken, I say cauliflower is a great substitute, gives the same mouthfeel if you want to use that instead of chicken. I mean, in the mains section, so there's like soup, sides, mains, and desserts, totally dinner focused because dinner can be the hardest meal. You're tired. It's the end of the day and you still have a hungry allergy family. So there would definitely be like the pot roast you're not going to want to do. But I think all the sides, the soup, um, and a lot of the mains, you can switch up, use lentils instead. So yeah, I think it's still, it would still work for you. Definitely. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. I really appreciate that because I think it's, there are people out there that have allergies and then also have other restrictions, you know? So for sure, for sure. And I always feel so bad because I always think, man, I'm already cooking to such a low denominator, but then I'll have a reader say, you know, I can't do this that we can. And I'm like, Oh shoot. Like there's just such an array that people are dealing with every day, you know? So yeah. I, definitely can't cater. I mean, you, you definitely can't cater to every single, but there, there's definitely some recipes that'll work for people with multiple things and some that won't, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. You always wish you could like cover everyone, but there's such an array. Yeah. Yes. There's no way to do that. That's what I also love about your blog is that you give so many different options. It's nice because you show that it's flexible and you also show that like cooking for allergies doesn't have to be as hard as we think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's half, just half a mind game of like, oh, how am I going to work around this? You know, it's like getting out of that space and letting yourself be creative. Like, oh, I could still do this or that. So thank you. So yeah, thank you so much. This was so fun. Yeah. It's so great just to talk to people who get it. So I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www.itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.